Well, I just want to welcome everyone. Uh, it's good to have you uh, uh, sitting nice and comfy in wherever you're at this morning, tuning in on the live stream. Um, it's, we're comfy in here. It's much warmer than outside. So I hope you're doing well, and thanks for pulling that quick change this morning. I um, just want to let you know my name is Andrew, and um, I am a member here at Parkview North, and I'm so excited to share the word with you today. And so if you have uh, your, your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5. So if you grab your uh, Bibles, you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 5, and uh, we'll read the entire chapter together first, and then we'll pray. So 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would not need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what ha have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we get started, let's pray together. Lord, we praise you um, that your mercy is all our plea. We come to you and your word this morning, thanking you for your sacrifice, that we can listen from you, from your word. We pray that you would give us special insight and understanding from your spirit as we look into your word today. And we pray that you would also help us to know how to apply this passage to our lives and to our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Josh talked about uh, leaders, how we are to think about leaders. He talked about 1 Corinthians 4, that leaders are to be servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. 
And by living their life serving Christ in this way, they were opening themselves up to persecution. So they were also examples of how to do that. His last point last week was that um, Paul thought himself to be the Corinthians' father in Christ. Um, And so Josh talked about the importance of seeing our leaders as fathers, as spiritual fathers, spiritual mentors. He encouraged us to have mentors and to be mentors in the faith. And I personally have been blessed by uh, many mentors in my life. And I wanted to quickly tell you about one of them. His name is Joe. When my dad passed away, I was only 14 years old. And so I was looking for a spiritual father, uh, someone to help me along as I was growing. And God brought me a guy named Joe. And Joe was a pastor in Minneapolis when I was in college. And so he met with me. Um, over and over and over again to mentor me. And what was neat is because uh, Joe was so uh, special in my life, he was also mentored by my dad when he was in college. So when I was meeting with him, I would learn things from my dad, which is really neat. So I remember we would get together and we would eat big breakfasts and just talk about life, how I was doing, how he was doing, and he was a pastor, so we talked a lot about his church. Um, he would talk about the sermons he was working on, the good things that were going on, and, but he would also talk about the difficult things in his church. And for a season, he would talk most every time we got together about an issue of church discipline that he was going through. Now, our passage this morning is on church discipline, a hard, um, tough love that we need to show in our churches in order to fight for its purity. And so he was going through church discipline, and I could just really tell that it was tough to do this. And uh, often he would say that it was hard, it was not going well, but in the end they did need to remove a man from their congregation because it just was not healthy. And I just remember the, the love that he had for his local church, the love that he was showing by doing this, even though it was hard. And he would often tell me about his experience when he was in his 20s, how God, as he was studying the Word, just gripped his heart for him, but also for a love for the local church. And so God worked in his heart, giving him a love for the local church and for its health. And so my question today is, has God gripped our hearts for the local church? Has God gripped our hearts to be pure, to fight for its purity, and to love it like Joe loved his church? And so two weeks ago, um, Wade spoke to us, and he spoke to us on 1 Corinthians 3 about God's plan for the church. He will build his church. And Wade calls it, the church, this unstoppable force. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And so it's based on his promise that this is what he's going to do. And so God's plan of redemption flows through the local church as the local church serves and does his will, does his work in the world. The local church combines with God's work and is just a powerful force for what God is doing in the world and in history. So in the, first, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the local church and is addressing many issues. 
for the Corinthians. And they definitely had a lot of issues. So far, he's talked about the issues about their divisions. They were, they were picking sides over leaders that they liked, and then they were fighting about it. So I call that first one, they were dividing and they were fighting. And so now he's transitioning to a whole series of other problems that the church had and kind of reminding them of the gospel as he addresses each problem. So he'll talk about sexual immorality. He talks about idolatry later in the book. He talks about the worship gathering. He talks about the resurrection. And all these issues, he's responding with gospel truths. How do we think as Christians? How do we have a gospel worldview? Not just on Sunday, but in every day of our lives. As we can encounter all the things we encounter, how do we bring the gospel in? And we were to do this in, in, in the context of a local church, in the context of a community working together. So if you're taking notes, um, it's a pretty simple outline today. I have three points, and there are three Ps. I know, I couldn't resist. Three Ps. The problem, what is happening at the church, verses 1 and 2. The process, what to do about it, what to do about this problem, verses 3, three through 5. And the principles, why we do it, the reasons we do this. So first, let's look at the problem. What is happening at the church? And the problem is there's, there is serious sin. This is a pretty serious passage, and there's a pretty serious sin going on. But really, the sin is twofold. The sin is individual, and the sin is also by the group. So there is a man living in sin and a church living in pride. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at those first two verses again. It says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So there's a man living in sin. And this sin is what I call unrepentant sexual immorality. So it's sexual immorality by a particular man in the church. And so the phrase says, if you can see it, that a man has his father's wife. And this most likely refers to this man sleeping with his stepmother. Now we don't have a whole lot of details about this, but we do know that it is an ongoing sin because it says a man has her not had, but an ongoing verb, has. So it's still happening. That's why I call it an unrepentant, ongoing. This is a bold sin. It's continuing. So we not only have that, but we have the church that's tolerating this, a church that's living in pride. And this is what I call boastful arrogance. They're boastful in their arrogance. So Paul calls them out, if you can see. You are arrogant. And literally, this means to be puffed up, um, to be inflated with pride. So we've learned um, throughout this process of looking at 1 Corinthians that arrogance was a big problem with this church. And Josh calls it the Corinthian problem. They were arrogant in their abilities, and so this made them apathetic to love one another. Verse 6, if you look at it, says that they were also boasting. So this is a boastful arrogance. So the problem was they believed that they had a special gift, a special wisdom, a special spiritual gift that gave them a special status, right? And because of this status, they boasted about it. 
They thought that they had the wisdom and, and status, worldly wisdom, but they had very little spiritual wisdom or spiritual discernment. So they allowed this sin and other sins to happen in their church. So my question is, how were they boasting in this exactly? And as I studied it, they, they may have been displaying this attitude of cheap grace that we see in Scripture, similar to Romans 6. So let's sin that grace may abound all the more. And also, if you look in chapter 6, they said, they had a phrase that said, everything is lawful to me. So they had a, a view of Christian freedom that was very permissive, actually way too overboard. And so they were not only tolerating the sin, but they were celebrating the sin, right? So I call it tolerating and celebrating. So this was pretty serious. And Paul saw this for sure, and he was burdened. He said he, he was just astonished and shocked that this was going on and they were tolerating it. So if you look at the passage, it says it is actually reported that this is going on. And he says it's not even tolerated among the pagans, among the non-Christians. So Paul had already wrote them a letter before 1 Corinthians that said, avoid this type of thing. And he also, it, it's, I think it was hurting their witness too. For the Jews around them, this sin would have been unthinkable. Leviticus 18.8 strictly forbids it. And then the culture around them, this, this was also unacceptable as well. There is evidence that this was against Roman law even. And this is saying a lot because the culture was very promiscuous. So they were tolerating a sin that was not even accepted by the Romans. So this is beyond worldliness. It's serious. So, if you, so what is Paul's command? What does he want him to do? And this is the main action of the passage. Remove him from among you. Verse 2. So this means, means to expel him out of the church, to remove him. And the NIV puts it, to put him out of the fellowship. And so if you look through the passage, Paul has a number of ways that he describes how they are to do this. In verse 5, deliver him to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 13, purge the evil from among you. Verse 9, do not associate. Verse 11, do not even eat. So these phrases, do not even associate, do not even eat, are definitely debated when I studied it as to exactly what it means. What, what does it mean not to eat with this person? Well, I think they probably mean not to, for sure not to allow this person at the church service, for sure not to allow this person in any church function. But we also remember that uh, eating with someone was to have close fellowship with them. So I think it also means any context where there's close fellowship outside the church, don't, um, don't be with this person in close fellowship in that type of setting. So that's the problem. There's immoral unrepentance, and the church is, church is boasting and arrogant, and Paul's solution is to expel him. So let's look at the process, and this is verse 3 through 5. So number one, uh, the problem. Number two, the process, verse 3 through 5. And this is what to do about the problem. And I have three key words, mourn, assemble, and remove. So let's read them again, read the verses again. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. It's talking about Paul. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So he already wrote a letter telling them what he thought about this. 
when you are assembled, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So I'm going to key in on three phrases of Paul here in the text, which give us the process that this church was to do. Verse 2 says, ought you not to mourn? So first they were to mourn, but they were to mourn with humility, without pride. And second, they were to assemble in the name of the Lord and assemble in the power of the Lord. So assemble, but do so with authority. And then third, verse 5, they were to deliver this, deliver this man to Satan. So remove him, but do so with specific purposes, specific intentions. So first, mourn, but to do so without pride. Remember, their problem was they were arrogant. And Paul says, are you not to mourn instead? Instead of arrogance, instead of tolerating this and celebrating this sin, they should mourn. And, the, and mourn just means to grieve here, <laughs> grieve over this sin. So what they were to do is instead of accepting this sin, they were to be sorrowful over the sin, that it was there, that they were accepting it, that it was happening, and to call themselves to repentance and to call the man to repentance to weep over the sin, to have deep confession, to hurt in the heart, and to repent because that's what the Lord wants. And the mourning really should be with, with action. It's an active mourning. They should want to make it right. They should want to, to strive for the purity of this church. And they were also to assemble. So they were to mourn and then assemble. And they were to assemble, to get together, and they were to do so with authority, it says with the power of the Lord. So the phrase is, gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 4, and assemble with the power of the Lord Jesus. So these are really important phrases about the authority that the local church has to do the Lord's will. When it's assembled in this way, it has his very own power. It has authority. So it means that, God, that the church in this way has um, uh, authority to make decisions, good decisions, even hard decisions um, that are in, in line with Jesus' will. So Paul's saying something like, you know, remember you represent all that Christ is. You are his body. You are his ambassadors when you assemble in his name. And he's saying you are responsible, remember, to make these decisions to fight for the purity of the church. And you do so with the Spirit's power. So we need to remember, too, that Jesus is the ultimate judge. He's the one that will judge. But the local church does have authority to make judgments, to carry out his will in these ways, again, with his spirit and in humility. And number three, remove. But remove with a purpose. Remove with very specific intentions. And so if you look at it again, the phrase is, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And this phrase just, wow, is intense when you read it. And as I was studying, it really is the most difficult phrase of the passage to figure out what it, what it might mean. And so I'll let you study it more, but I'm going to just kind of tell you what I think it means um, and, and then move on. Um, but it is very important to understand what to do, how to remove, and why we're removing so deliver means to pronounce judgment, like I was saying, 
to pronounce judgment on him, to remove him. And deliver to Satan means to do, do a couple things. The first is to remove the man from the, the protective influence of the fellowship. The local church is a protective, encouraging influence. And so taking him out of those encouraging hands and placing him into the hands of, of Satan. Now, so Satan is called the God of this world. So in removing him from the church, it's taking him out of that, those encouraging hands and placing them into Satan's hands to follow the ways of the world, to follow evil with all of its temptations. And I think also it's, in, it's doing this with the prayer that the evil power of the world, of Satan, might have its way in this person, that things will go bad, that flesh will be destroyed, um, that this positive environment of the church will be removed and this negative environment will take over and he would have sorrow upon sorrow. And then it's for the destruction of his flesh, the phrase says. So I, so I think a part of this is he will see the futility, right, of his ways, that he's trusting and living for all the wrong things and that his evil, fleshly, sinful nature, that lifestyle uh, might be destroyed, he'll see that it's just not worth it. It's worthless. It's powerless to give him any sense of um, worth. Only God can give him worth. So all of this is done right with a purpose, a redemptive purpose, if you see that this, this man might be led to repentance and be restored to the church. So by turning him over to Satan... In this way, he might experience that sorrow of sin and see his error and repent. And, and, and if you see in the passage, it says that his spirit may be saved in the future when Jesus comes to judge. So that's the problem and the process. And so now let's look at the principles of this passage. So the reasons why. Why are they to do all of this? And I'm going to read verses 5 through the end of the 5 through 13 again, <clears throat> so that we see a little bit more of what's being talked about. So we're to deliver this man so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So I think what my goal is now is to go through uh, these uh, principles and see some reasons why they were to do this, why they were to practice this from the text why they're to remove this man, and then I want to do so in a form of principles so that we can apply these to our churches when we show this tough love, when we 
practice church discipline in our churches. So um, I've got three principles. We expel to avoid hell. We separate to celebrate. And we judge to love. So I tried to make them rhyme because I like to do that, but the third one didn't quite work. So we expel to avoid hell. We separate to celebrate. We judge to love. So it kind of works if you say it fast. So the first principle is we expel to avoid hell. Now this one I've talked a little bit about already, but the purpose is that he might ultimately be saved in the end. There are doubts that he's saved and, and because he has an unrepentant lifestyle. So if you look at verse 11, it says, he bears the name of brother. So the New American Standard says he is a so-called brother. So in fact, when I, when I looked this up, almost every translation said this differently. Um, he may be a believer, he may not be a believer, but regardless, the hope is that by practicing this, practicing this church discipline, his spirit would be saved in the end. So we expel some to avoid hell. The second principle is we separate to celebrate. We separate to celebrate. So we do separate the unrepentant sinner from the church. That's one separation. But Paul is talking about another separation and that is uh, the lifestyle of the church. So the church is to separate itself from anyone who claims to be a believer, yet is living in a clear lifestyle of unrepentant, ongoing sin, a bold sin. If you look in verse 11, he has some categories. This includes the sexually immoral, one filled with greed, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. He says, stay away from these people. And so when we read this, we need to remember that these are not believers that struggle with these things here and there. These are people who are so-called brothers or sisters that are totally unrepentant, completely bold in their habitual sin, like this man living in sexual immorality. So my question is, why practice this type of separation? And if you look at uh, verse 6, it talks about a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's Paul's reason. So sin is like yeast that takes over the entire lump of dough. Sin is like cancer that gets in your body, and it eventually spreads and eventually kills the person if you don't do something about it if you don't remove it, if you don't cut it out of, your, out of the body. So the church is to be pure and not have these bad, unhealthy associations. So then Paul gives the theological reason why the church should celebrate. It's just to, to separate. It's to celebrate. <laughs> so verses 7 and 8 is my favorite couple of verses of the passage. If you read them, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Israelites celebrated the Passover in the Old Testament every year, and part of to prepare for it was that they would get rid of all leaven or all yeast out of their bread for an entire week. 
And yeast became a, a symbol of sin. But we, we celebrate Christ now um, in this day and age. And we celebrate his ultimate sacrifice. He is the greater, the, pa- the great Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed for our sins, for those who put their trust in him. He's sacrificed for our sins that we might be pure. So the yeast of our sin is taken away. And so now we are free to celebrate. We separate to celebrate. We celebrate this amazing sacrifice. And we celebrate by doing a very particular thing, by living holy lives. We've been made holy by Christ and now we live holy lives. That's how we celebrate this amazing sacrifice. So the point is, we've been made new by Christ, by his sacrifice. We're now new lumps. We're new creations. We've been cleansed by Christ to live holy lives, not evil lives. That's why we, we separate to celebrate in our churches with our very lives. So the third principle is we judge to love. We judge to love. If you look at verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not inside the church whom you are to judge? So we learned already that the church has authority to assemble together and make decisions, make judgments in Christ's name, right, and in his power. But we don't do so in a judgmental way. We don't do so pointing our fingers um, and putting people down. We, do, we make decisions like this with mourning, right? With humility. Because sin grieves us and we need to do something about it. So if you think about my mentor, Joe, I could just see that he was grieving over the sin um, that, that he was working through with his church and that it was hard, but that because of his love for his church, he need, they needed to do this, make this decision. So some people say that this type of discipline is, is too judgmental, right? Judge not lest you be judged. But I don't think that that's what this passage is talking about. It's, it's talking about um, what Jesus said. Uh, when you... When you make, go to your brother, you take out that plank from your eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so you do remove the speck, but you do so as you examine yourself and as you understand humility and mourning. So we judge to love, right? We love the church. We do this hard work of making these judgments because we love, we want it to prosper. We show love. And I think there's a couple of ways where we show love by doing this, by, by practicing this type of spiritual discipline or um, church discipline. I think it really is loving. And in this section is, um, I get these points from a little book called Church Discipline by Jonathan Lehman. And so I would really recommend that you read a book like that to understand a little bit more about church discipline. This is a very specific case that I'm talking about today, but it's not the full picture of the topic in the Bible. So something like that will really help you. But I think these are powerful reasons that he brings out. It shows love for the sinner, the church, 
the world and the Lord. So it shows love in all those ways. So it shows love for the sinner. It always has a redemptive purpose, a good purpose to it. It shows love for the church, right? So the church may be protected, the church may be pure. So it's loving towards the local church to get rid of bad influences, to protect it, to purify it. Remember, Jesus died for this very reason. If you look at Ephesians 5, it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And and the reason is so that he might sanctify her. He might she might be holy as the bride of Christ without blemish. So Jesus has done everything for the church. And so, and he wants it to be pure. That's why he did this. And so in practicing church discipline, we display this similar type of love, love that Christ has for his bride. We want to see Christ's bride walk in love and walk in purity. It also shows love for the world, right? The love that we might be in our church distinct, salt and light, but yet reach out to all. So there is uh, outreach in this passage. You know, w- the world needs to see us as, as different, you know, not as hypocrites, right? Not as living worldly. When we do so, we stand out and we preserve a really good witness. So the passage says that we reach out, that we should associate with, verse 10, the sexually immoral of this world, those unbelievers, this world, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. We, we are to associate with those people and to reach out to them in Jesus' name. And it's really interesting that many of the Corinthians lived these types of lifestyles before they became Christians. If you look at uh, chapter 6, God, God saved them out of these very things. It says you were washed, you were sanctified. So there's good news in the gospel for all, and we reach out in his name. We preserve our, our witness by fighting for healthy churches. And finally, a, a love, again, church discipline in this way is loving for the Lord, ultimately. That Christ may be honored, that Christ may be exalted. Remember that Christ is our Passover lamb, that he's been sacrificed. And we honor this sacrifice. We celebrate it by living holy lives. We live with sincerity to him. We live in the truth, in his word, in the truths of his word. And all of this really is a picture of the amazing gospel. That Christ has been sacrificed. Our sins are atoned for. Um, And then we've been made holy so that we can be holy by living lives of holiness. We've gone from our old life right? A life of sin to a new life, a new life in Christ. And I really like Titus 2.14. It says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, the reason is to purify himself for a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So when we are zealous for these good works, we show that we do love the Lord and, and, we, and we honor him as he gave himself up for us. And one commentator says, a passion for purity is the proof of our pardon. A passion for purity is the proof that we've been pardoned. So in summary, I'd just like to say that these principles are really about two things. 
salvation of the soul, and sanctification of the church. So what happened to this man in, this, in, in, in Corinth? What, what is the rest of the story, story, so to say? Well, if you look at 2 Corinthians 2, it talks about some of these same themes in 2 Corinthians. We know that this church in Corinth did heed the warnings. They practiced some church discipline in 2 Corinthians. Paul did encourage them to forgive, to comfort, to bring back into the church, to reaffirm that love. So in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, this may be about the very man our passage is talking about. It may not be. But if so, it's a great and powerful story of redemption and repentance. But we, we do know that there is a good ending here in some sense, and that the church took heed to this warning, took heed to these words, and, and it grew and became more healthy because of it. So what's the rest of the story with my mentor, Joe? Um, so I, my mentor, Joe, as we gathered together every week, I learned more about his church. He talked about the good, he talked about the bad, the ugly of his church. He talked about the joys of pastoral ministry and the sorrows. And I just realized as he talked about it, it was over and over again, I realized that it, the church wasn't perfect, but it was worth investing in. Um, because living for the church is Christ's plan, right? The local church is his story of redemption worked out in our lives. So he told me that when he was in his 20s, he was considering what he might do with his life. And as he studied scripture, God gripped his heart for the local church. And so he became a pastor. And little did I know that as I listened to him about what God was doing in his life, the same thing was happening in my heart as I listened to him and as I studied it. God gripped my heart for the local church. And so I've been in pastoral ministry. I found that my love for the local church just grew and blossomed in the same way that it did with Joe. So as we close today, I just want to think about the passage and have you consider just a few questions for application. Do we love the local church? Do we really love it? Right? Are we committed to it? Are we committed to its purity? We should be, because Jesus is. Right? Are, we, are we acting like the Corinthians in any way? Are we tolerating sin around us? Are we tolerating sin in our lives? Does this sin grieve us? It really should. It should make us mourn over our sin. We should mourn over the sins of those around us. Will we judge to love? In other words, will we practice this church discipline when it's hard, when it's not popular, when it may not always work out with a happy ending? Will we still do this? And will we separate to celebrate? In other words, will we live holy lives unto the Lord in order to celebrate his sacrifice for the sake of purity, for the sake of love? And in all these things, will we, will we live for, for the gospel? Remember, Jesus is the great Passover lamb. He died for the church. He made us holy, and we honor this sacrifice by living with all sincerity and truth. And maybe this week in your community groups or in your family, you want to talk about some of these questions as you consider them. But as we close now, I'd like to take just a couple moments in silence, wherever you're at, to pray over what we just learned.
Lord, we thank you for your word and how it speaks to so many different things. And it speaks to our hearts. We pray that you would help us know um, the depth of your sacrifice for us. That you would help us know how to apply living this passage out in our own lives and in our churches. We praise you uh, so much for this time we could have together. In Jesus' name, amen.